invite you to take your copy of God's Word, turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, our verses for consideration begin in John 15, 26, and go all the way through chapter 16 and verse 15. John chapter 15, beginning with verse 26, through John chapter 16 and verse 15. And I know what most of you are thinking right now at this moment. That is a huge chunk of scripture, and for a guy that can take three verses and go for 45 minutes to an hour, I hope they pass out bag lunches for us because it's going to take him a while to go through that. Uh, you would be right. Uh, let me, if I could, just a little window here. You know, people ask, uh, how, do, how do you come up with sermons? Well, you don't come up with sermons. You to use an old cliche, you pray them down, you don't come up with them, but where do you start and where do you finish? If I could just use a little teachable moment here. It's very important to understand where to start and where to finish. In your own private reading, if you're delivering a Bible study at your home, what you don't want to do is begin in the middle of a thought or end in the middle of a thought. You want to captive, hold captive, let the verses hold captive, all the truths that are being contained in a section. And so that's why you see crossover from one chapter to the next at times. And so in, for us, John chapter 15, verse 26 through 16, 15 is a block of thought. You don't want to begin somewhere that's not meant to be a beginning and end somewhere that's not to be an ending. You want the full thought and the full measure there. But understanding this is a full chunk, I at first thought I could make it all the way through. But under conviction this morning, chances are that we'll make this a two-parter. Uh, because of the subject matter. And what I mean by that is there are two approaches to these texts. One is the immediate context is in the upper room. And Jesus is speaking to the 11 and by implication to you and I. And he is divulging some of the greatest words of love and security and strength and power for perseverance in this sin-fallen world that he knew before the foundation of the world it would last 2,000 years past him and beyond until his father turns to him and says, go get your bride. There are two approaches here. One approach is in the context that Jesus is speaking for encouragement and for endurance and divulging to them something new that they had not heard before. But there's another way you could go about this. And this is, uh, I'm not going to do it twice. The other way that you can go about these particular passages is unraveling or destroying what I feel is the biggest myth, the biggest danger, the biggest abuse of Scripture, particularly in regards to who is the Holy Spirit and what in the world am I supposed to do with him in my life daily. Now, one side, you can go home uh, this afternoon, flip on TBN, and you can see the abuse of these texts. As if the Holy Spirit is given to us to make all our wishes and dreams come true. But that's not what's divulged in these scriptures. What is being transferred here is an understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what exactly he does. That's not defined by us. It's defined by God. So there's two ways to look at it. We're going to view it through the lens of remaining in the context of the encouragement and the perseverance in a world, quite frankly, that you and I find ourselves in that is very, very close to the world of these original 11. And in fact, I would say, and I don't, I'm not a doomsday sort of fellow, but it seems to be spiraling downward, not upward in this sense, particularly for us as Christians. What is our strength? What is our perseverance? How are we supposed to view the Holy Spirit? 
and his mission in the world. The promise and the mission of the Holy Spirit. I invite you to stand in honor of reading of God's word, John chapter 15, beginning with verse 26 through 16, verse 15, and ask that you to follow along silently as I read aloud the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 26 of chapter 15, Jesus speaking says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. I will send him to you. For I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, and particularly for a season and time with so much abuse of these texts, and particularly the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you give us clarity. Remind us of that which we already proclaim, that we trust in, and that we know that we're not listening to others' opinions and thoughts. We want to hear the truth from the spirit of truth. And that leads us into a needy position. Father, we need you to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Holy Spirit, come, fulfill these verses. Guide and direct us into all truth. Help us to understand your mission and how we walk alongside of that. How you empower us. How you encourage. How you exhort. How you convict. To the end that we fulfill the purposes and plans of our God. And so come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to be moved. And give us lives to be transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. What an incredible promise. 
What an incredible promise. And I don't even mean the verses that we just got through reading. I mean the promise that Jesus made earlier in this conversation, this recorded for us in John chapter 14 and verse 12. Jesus speaking made this promise, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. To me, when I hear that promise, I'm just overwhelmed. I mean, you want to talk about a wow factor. What a promise for ordinary folks like me and you. What a... What a shock, what an explosion in the mind, the heart, and the soul of those original 11, much more so for what we consider not having the privilege or the blessing of walking side by side, face to face, in the physical presence of the Son of God. When one considers the implications in the promise of doing greater things than God the Son, I mean, what inclusion What responsibility, what excitement, what anticipation comes in knowing that Jesus himself said to his disciples, you're going to do greater works than me. I don't know about you, but I mean, that makes me stop in whatever I'm thinking of myself, what I'm about the business doing, and what I need to be about the business doing. I mean, just emotions and conviction and responsibility come flowing in. When one considers the implications in the promise of doing greater things than God the Son, and that begs the question, what are these greater things? It doesn't mean that you and I are going to lay hands on somebody and raise them from the dead. It doesn't mean that you and I are going to take somebody that's been blind at birth, put our fingers upon their eyes, or someone that's been deaf since birth and put our fingers in their ears and make them hear. That wasn't the greater thing in anything that God, uh, Jesus was doing while he was here on this earth. Those were implications to give a sign towards that which he was most concerned with. For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save what? That which is lost. Salvation. The purposes of God before the foundation of the world to select out, choose out from this sin-fallen world Those that were brought to salvation through faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. That's that's the thing Jesus was most concerned with. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Praise God for the power and the strength to do that. An image or a thought the way we will be raised from the dead one day through his power. But Lazarus died eventually. That wasn't an end unto itself. Jesus in that episode in John chapter 11 said, look, He's died for a purpose. It's for the glory of God to show you the power and the strength to raise the spiritually dead from the dead to a newness of life. Those are the greater things, which then says, because of about three and a half years of earthly ministry being confined to time and space of where he was at that moment, Jesus Christ had a limited mission. You and I have the freedom now of length of days and mobility that he never could have had here. We're not talking about superiority here. What we're talking about is availability to do more, increase, greater things to see somebody else in our lives, whether it's down the street, 
inside the state, somewhere in this country or around the world, that we have the incredible opportunity to perform in that sense the deliverance of the truth of the gospel to see God work in their life to raise them from spiritually being dead to a newness of life with him. That's the greater works. That's what we've been given. And that's what we've been promised. And when you consider the implications of that promise, one is humbled and excited with anticipation. All right, everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God is yes and amen and true and is fulfilled, right? So the only thing that lays in the balance of whether you and I are going to understand this mission, understand this power, and be obedient to it. That's the only thing that stands in the way of the incredible blessing of seeing however many God has chosen come to saving faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that humbles me incredibly. And yet at the same time, it excites me unbelievably. But when one considers that last phrase in that promise, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Because I'm going to the Father, it is almost like a, a stop. All that humility, all that excitement of that power suddenly brings you to the point of the understanding of the moment in the hearts of those 11 in that room. I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't come. All right, so all the humility, all the excitement and the anticipation that I'm going to do something even in greater degree than the Son of God would do. How am I going to do this when you're not here? I mean, I think we were all have a good understanding <laughs> of our own frailty, of our own limitations, in and of ourselves. Who am I to be included in this promise? And now you're saying you're going away. I'm okay with the do greater things, but you're leaving. One is left with a total sense of inadequacy. How am I supposed to do these greater works when you're not with me? And that's the context of the moment. All right, by now they understand he's leaving. But he gives them a promise earlier they're going to do greater things. Immediately, whoa, wait a minute. I'm supposed to go tell people about you? I'm just a fisherman, a tax collector. I'm in the medical field. I'm a fireman. I work at Mississippi State University. I work in the healthcare system. You want to take the incredible truths of God by myself... And I'm going to do these greater things in my a total sense of inadequacy at this point. It had to hit them. Okay, great, wonderful promise, but you're leaving. Not a chance I'm going to do this on my own. And you'd be right. In a sense, what Jesus is offering in this moment to these 11 and to you and I sitting here in this room is this. It was never the Father's plan to leave you on your own. I'm going to send a helper. And then this takes us to the moment. What is it we're supposed to get out of this that the 11 were intended to get out of it? Remember what I've told you many, many times. I remember this. We cannot allow God's word mean something to us that it did not mean to the original readers. That's your task in understanding God's word. You want to go back to that moment. You want to be in that upper room. You want to have those emotions and the thoughts of the one that you gave up everything in your life for to follow him, now says he's leaving, gives you this incredible promise and task and mission to do. You can't help but think, I, 
I'm an insurance salesman. How am I supposed to do these things? And I believe that is the purpose. But here's my observation in the middle of this. Way too many Christians forfeit the blessing that comes with sharing the gospel and, Lord willing, seeing someone saved because of fear and confusion over the promise and the mission of the Holy Spirit. It's been so abused that we're even the best of us as Christians stand back from it because we can't make heads or tails of who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. I mean, the abuse of the slain in the spirit, Benny Hinn style, or, or all the other absolute abuse of the understanding of the person work of the Holy Spirit has taken the best of us as Christians and filled us with fear. Could they possibly be right? I don't think they're right, but they could be right. The confusion and the distortion of many of us as Christians forfeiting the incredible blessings of sitting before someone and in humble words, Simply fulfilling what God has asked us to do with this type of help and power. And so if you're sitting here in this room, I want to ask you to do something real quick. I very rarely do this as far as audience participation when I'm preaching. But I, I want to, there was a season in my life where I was scared to death to share the gospel with people. It wasn't that I wasn't in all of it. It wasn't that it hadn't had an effect on my life. I saw myself as someone that didn't, was not adequate, that that was reserved for folks who were especially gifted to go speak and talk to people about that. They would know all the answers because once you get the information, they're going to ask questions. And then if you don't have the exact answers to all the questions, then you're going to do worse of a job if you just kept your mouth shut and just hope they'll pick up on it as you're living a godly life. Let me ask you a question that had to hammer home to me. I want you to think about this. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a statement with multiple choice answers. And I want you to think about them, and then I'm going to ask you to respond to it. Just for you right now as you're sitting here. Ask this question of your own self and your own heart. The weakest part of my walk with the Lord is, A, my Bible study. B, my prayer life, or C, the sharing of my faith with other people. As I assess my own life individually, the weakest part of my walk with the Lord is either A, my Bible study, B, my prayer life, or C, my sharing of my faith with others. Think about it for just a second. Out of curiosity, how many of you would answer to C? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, at least half the room. There have been occasions when I've used this particular illustration that about 90% of the people let raise their hands. Doesn't surprise me that many of you in your room don't see that as your weakest aspect because I see it continue in your life. We may not be the biggest, <clears throat> but we got some of the people who have a heart not only understand the gospel, but to go and share it. And that's an incredible blessing for this man. But that's most Christians' testimony. How do I get over the hump to do what I know that I'm supposed to do so I don't mess it up? So here's from the mouth of Christ the comfort, the stability for the 11 and for us. And so lessons in accomplishing greater things. <clears throat> lessons in accomplishing these greater things, okay? Number one, verses 26 and 27, the tail end of verse 15, the, the believer's power source. 
And I think this is probably the biggest hurdle for most Christians to get over. The feeling of inadequacy. And it's on me. Or it's on you to get it done. Look at verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, Jesus says, excuse me, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. One of the greatest helps in understanding and evangelism is, are you ready? You are secondary, not primary. Now, there's two ways you can take that. When you see that you're secondary, then you can slough off or get lazy or complacent in that. I would ask you to concentrate on the fact that it's not on you and I to save anyone. There's not a single solitary person in this room, in and of themselves, who's going to save anyone. The helper has been promised to fulfill these greater works because he and he alone possesses the power to convict their hearts about their sin and their need for a savior. We are verbally communicating, coming alongside of him. That phrase, the helper, the Holy Spirit, your version may say comforter, advocate, counselor. It's from the Greek word paraclete or parakletos. One called alongside to help. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. In those moments, I'm not talking about in your prayer life. I know so-and-so in my life. I just got to have that conversation. I'm talking at the moment when the rubber hits the road, when you're standing in front of that person and you got that urging within your heart, speak to them the gospel. The thing you should be clinging to is not immediately sinking within inside of yourself. Think of the right way to say it. Say it in the right cadence. Give the right scripture references. While all those things are there, rely on the helper who's come for you. His strength. Lean on his strength, not in your own One of the greatest fears I've heard from most Christians say, look, I I know what to say, but I I feel like if I say it, I'm going to butcher it. And if I butcher it, I'm going to do worse than if I just keep my mouth shut. That's a poor understanding of the presence of the Holy Spirit in mind in your life to fulfill that which God has called him to do in his mission. And while he is our helper, we are, in a sense, the secondary cause in this point. His qualification, look back at the verse. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. That word proceeds means to flow forth from. Now at this moment, it begs the procession of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. That's a sermon for another day. But understand this. This isn't a helper in the sense of somebody farther down the organizational chart to help. A good helper but not the president of the corporation or the CEO. We're talking about proceeds comes in the same way that Jesus in multiple times in John chapter 8, verse 42, in 13, 3, and in 16, 27 coming up. He's going to basically say the same thing. We're Trinitarians in that sense. They are in essence one and the same, three in one. The strength and the power in mind in your life to fulfill the promise of doing these greater things is not in us. It's in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit whose task it is to do those things. I want to preface that by saying, be careful. Holy Spirit's going to do what he wants to do. God knows before the foundation of the world, let it happen. That is disobedience and a poor understanding of how God has called us in to the greatest act of love. To people all over this world who desperately need to understand and know that God loved them so much. That he would send his only son to die for their sins. 
Now, that's his qualification, but his essence, he's the spirit of truth. All right, you ready? In a basic application, the understanding when you and I, and I've been in those settings. <laughs> I've been in those settings when I have communicated the gospel, and then about two-thirds of the way through presenting the gospel to somebody, I'm thinking to myself, that voice is saying, you are butchering this opportunity. You get so many thoughts in your mind that you're going all over the place instead of a nice, simple stream of thought that needs to go there. I've been in that moment. I've even gotten to the end of it <clears throat> and to that point and saying, do you understand what I'm communicating to you? And surprisingly and shockingly, they say yes, under what I thought that I had done. And at the end, pressing them to a response and a good gospel presentation, and they simply say, yes, absolutely, I need Christ as my Lord and Savior. And inside of me, I've said, you've got to be kidding. Based on the job that I just did, you want to be saved. Ever been in that moment? He's the spirit of truth because the Holy Spirit proceeds and flows from the Father. You ready? He can do no less than speak the truth. That's the strength and the power. He has a singular mission. I wish I could get on a little sidebar here. I, I saw and this a little bashing of people, but so be it. I, I don't know what I was doing. Either somebody sent it to me or I looked on a YouTube channel, and it showed an episode that at the beginning window, it said Paul Washer spoke at Joel Osteen's church. And I said, what are you... How did that happen? Did he bust up and through the doors? Well, it was a goofy play on things. He didn't actually go there, but that would be a blessing if he did. He has a mission that is defined through God's word. It doesn't go outside of it. It doesn't divert from it. So if you're looking for clarity, who is this Holy Spirit and what is he supposed to do? This section defines it. End of story. Not the goofy stuff that you see in on TV or these books or whatever happened to be passed out in the name of proclaiming truth. He has a singular mission Look back at verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's it. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit. As he says further down the line, everything that are mine are given to him, he proclaims to me. His mission is confined, fenced in to the things of Jesus Christ. And now expanding on that is multiple implications. The eternality of Jesus Christ, that he has been from the beginning with the Father, that he proceeds from the Father, not made but begotten in this earth, taking on sinful flesh, living a sinless life, that you and I can never live on our own, willingly laying down his life to die for our sins, that he is the perfect sacrifice, he alone is the singular sacrifice that satisfies the Father's wrath against all unrighteousness for those who put their faith and trust in him. And that because he is that perfect sacrifice that he bled and he died, he satisfies the Father's wrath. And we know that he's a perfect sacrifice because he rose on that third day and he has ascended to the Father who is alive and well right now at his right hand interceding on our behalf. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit. Not calling upon the Holy Spirit to fulfill our wishes and wants, to make us wealthy, healthy, and wise. The Spirit of truth comes to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. That's his, but there's secondary help. Look at the secondary help in verse 27. This is me and you. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You're going to be together. You also explicitly to these 11, <coughs> excuse me, and by implication 
<coughs> excuse me, to every believer. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. If the coming of Pentecost is the gathering together of those two, ushering in that new age of the church age that you and I are still living in right now, we are to be engaged. We are on mission. We're not so much Southern Baptists. We're Trinitarians, and we are great commissioned people by this promise to come through through the power of the Holy Spirit. What Paul means in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So layer upon layer of awesome truth, not only that greater things are you going to have the potential to perform, greater than the Son of Man in limitations on this earth, but oh, by the way, the power of God himself is within you to accomplish that mission. You say, well, that's great, but I know my limitations. Well, Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 11, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but what? But the Holy Spirit who speaks. What an incredible, incredible task, but what an incredible truth to know that it's not on me and you. That's our source of power. Depend completely on the ultimate power that God has provided through the Holy Spirit for evangelism and to fulfill that purpose and that promise. Second lesson is in verses 1 through 4. Interesting here how John kind of slips into understanding of the Holy Spirit, then goes back to the persecution that we left off two Lord's Day mornings ago together. The reaction of the world. This is, this is a lesson Understand this. Don't get shocked in it all. We are delivering the greatest truth, the greatest act of love. It would seem in human minds and thoughts, everybody would climb on board. But that's not the case. Look at verses 1 through 4, the reaction of the world. I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. I don't want you to be shocked. All right, look. You have a perception that these things are going to be glorious and everybody is going to be won over and looks at you with loving kindness and appreciation for the communication of the gospel to them. Look, you need to understand something else is going to be happening here. And the risk is because of your own understanding of your own weakness that you're going to stumble, fall away from me. I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to tell you flat out the truth what it's going to be like. And if you've been engaged in being obedient to evangelism, you've tasted this in one degree or another. It's the reaction of the world. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now that's lost on me and you because we live in a world, particularly in the south here, because we have so many churches on every other street corner that the idea of excommunication or being ushered out of a church or falling under church discipline and being told basically this in a loving way, we want to include you in here, but we've got to take care of this sin. But if you're unwilling to come to this sin, uh, Matthew chapter 18, then we'll excommunication. That doesn't mean anything to anybody here. I'm just going to go down the street. If they don't like me there or I don't like what I'm hearing, I'll go to the next one and I'll go to the next one. And you have church hoppers all over the place. Yeah, if you're not going to serve me at this restaurant, there's 10 more down the street. But you need to understand what Jesus is trying to explain to these men. You're going to lose all social standing. Do you understand that? Their connectivity to the synagogue was deeper and richer than what most people understand about 
being a member of a church. Lord willing, in time, we're going to understand that same depth as it pertains to Grace Covenant Church. There's the risk. You're going to be a social outcast. Your mom and dad are going to have nothing to do with you. You will not be allowed in the synagogue. You are, in a sense, X'd out of all cultural activities, all societal activities. You are the odd one in the community. But then it goes further. Then he ramps it up. It's kind of like a progression going on. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Do you understand that out of those original 11, that 10 of those would, be, would be, feel exactly the loss of their life? John would have been the only one, and he just died of old age in exile. Kill you. Does that get your attention? Living in the South where cultural Christianity is just part of the community. There's no great risk. It's better than the bad stuff. Much rather go to church and be with the good folks than the bad folks who don't and think that's the greatest risk that could possibly be there. Some social understanding that I continually go to X place in my mind once a month, Christmas and Easter only. No, kill you. Take your physical life. And we've seen more and more demonstrations in the last decade, century in our area, around the world. If you'll lift up outside your zip code and see what's going on around the world, the persecution of Christians right now, we're living in a hotbed of it. Not just an occasional story across the globe. No, prepare yourself for separation and rejection because, are you ready? This is the ultimate path of victory. And you say, well, you know, he could have put it a little bit nicer way to kind of draw us into this mission. <laughs> you're going to run people off when you say, number one, you're going to be a social outcast. And oh, by the way, good chance it's going to cost you your entire life. And I don't see a lot of people lining up for, the, for that particular mission and offering. Now, the sad part is, is the contrast that's going on. There's two contrasts that are going on in this section. The they and the you. The they that keeps popping up in here, they are going to put you out of the synagogue. They are going to kill you. In fact, when they're doing it because of their ignorance, as he says further down the line, they do this because they don't know the Father and they don't know me. In their minds and their heart, they think they're offering service to God. That word service to God is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're pleasing and reasonable and acceptable service to God. In their minds, they think they're actually serving God by killing those that are proclaiming the truth of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that's supposed to be an inclusive world. The only strange thing in my observation, the only thing that is not included or accepted are the things of God. And if we're going to sit back as a church in our community and just let that be, then we're not going to be anything more than we are right now. A good gathering of some good, solid believers in this room. While all around us, people are living and dying in their sins because we're not going out and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It may not be the best setting. And I know there's a large group in this room that already at times steps out into that, praise God, an incredible blessing and the fulfillment of what he's getting at. The they, those in the world, that sin-fallen system that they're caught up in, 
and you, those I've chosen out of the world, back in verse 19. I'm doing this so you'll understand. They won't always go well. You're going to see the persecution. In fact, to the degree that it's going to be there. Understand it before you get into it. That is a chance of the reaction. You will suffer rejection, separation from the world, and possibly the loss of your physical life. But why? Verse 3. Verse 3. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They're lost. How do you expect sinners to react and act? They're going to be sinners. Sinners do what sinners do. They're going to be that way. The extreme cost in verse 2, indeed the hour when everyone kills you to service to God. The lesson, you will suffer that rejection, that separation from the world, and possibly your physical life. But I want you to see one more contrast that I think carries the day. It has to do with what I would call the contrast of the hours. Look back at the verse real quick. One through four. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They, the world, will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, they, will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. The hour is coming. How many times did Jesus get pressed into the moment and his response, instead of accelerating the purposes and plans of God, meaning his death, burial, and resurrection, my what? My hour has not yet come. All right, we've got a contrast in hours going on here. But it's an incredible help to us in understanding that pushback, that persecution, that suffering that may reach an extreme of a physical life being taken is exactly the purposes and plans of God. If I could put it this way, my hour has not yet come. This is incredible. Listen carefully. In my hour, in Jesus' hour, is his humiliation, his scourging, is bleeding and dying on a cross and being buried in a borrowed tomb. That's his hour in that sense. But the hour will be culminated when he raises with power on that third day. <clears throat> That's his hour. But concentrate on that old rugged cross that we just got through singing about. You got two worlds, you got two hours going on. Jesus is saying, in my hour, the world will see it as Jesus' greatest defeat. While God and Jesus will see it at Jesus' greatest victory. Do you understand that? The world doesn't know the Father, <clears throat> doesn't know the Son, doesn't even understand the purposes and plans of God. That finds its apex in victory <clears throat> in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his own Son. The world sees that as if they've won. But in their hour, in the world's hour, in their timing, it's flipped on its head. The world will see their persecution of Christians as their greatest victory. While God, Jesus, and all Christians will view it as their greatest victory. Is that not incredible? That the worst thing that you and I can imagine, socially, culturally, physically, is actually the greatest victory that could ever happen. <clears throat> now, we don't have martyrs complex. We're not walking out seeking our lives to be taken from us. But understand this, folks. This is the God who plays for keeps. 
This isn't some fairy tale. This is a battleground between souls that desperately need to understand the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. My question to you, if you happen to have raised your hands a few minutes ago with C as being the weakest part of your walk with the Lord and sharing your faith with other people, if I could press in just a little bit with all love, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? If your weakest part is Bible study, commit yourself to studying God's word, engage in community groups on Sunday nights, sit under God's word, listen to podcasts, good, credible podcasts. That's the answer to that. If it's prayer life, then just devote some more time, carve out some more time in a busy life and press into your prayer life. But in that last one is a risk, a persecution of being ostracized and perhaps giving your life. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus said. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to lose your life to keep it. And you're going to need possibly to take up your cross and follow me daily. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Press that into your heart and your soul. Then in verses 5 through 11, the helper to Christians, the convictor of the world. The helper to Christians, the convictor of the world. And this is where I'm going to stop. What gets communicated in the next verses about the, what the Holy Spirit is about the business doing and the reaction to the world to it. Guys, listen to me. It's exactly where we're living right now. The Holy Spirit is not here to help the world fulfill his dreams. The Holy Spirit's here to bring conviction into hearts, to show them their lostness so that they can be saved. One person that I admire very, very much had a great deal. God used him as a great deal in my life to understand his word and have the heart and desire to teach it as well. Said this, you give me an hour to witness to somebody, I'm going to spend 50 minutes on the problem and 10 minutes on the solution. He said, the reason why I'm going to spend 50 minutes on the problem is until you show them their lostness, what's the need of a savior? Save from what? Rescue from what? Redeem from what? You ready? The Holy Spirit is our helper, but he is the world's convictor. We'll pick up on this next time we're together. Father, thank you for your word. What an incredible promise. What are ordinary folk like us being asked to, commanded to, empowered to, the purpose and plan of all of creation? For you to redeem a people for yourself. Father, you've done that in our hearts and our lives. <clears throat> for every believer in this room, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we weren't just lost. We were spiritually, in the sense, dead. We couldn't respond and we wouldn't respond until you breathed that breath of life into our hearts. And we saw you for who you really are. We saw your righteousness.
We saw your purity. We saw your holiness. And immediately we were convicted. We're not. I'm, I'm exactly the opposite. I, I've sinned, every one of us, and fallen short of your glory. I, in and of myself, I, I'm the one that willfully rebelled against your purposes and plans and your commandments to me. Praise God to your glory that that which we could never do for ourselves, you did for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ. And by your unmerited favor, your grace, and your elective purposes before the foundation of the world, you chose us out of the world. How many more are out there? How many more are within a one-mile radius of this church? How many are perhaps sitting in this room right now? They need to feel that sense of conviction that only comes through the Holy Spirit because that conviction only leads to victory. Repentance, restoration, new life through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Father, do your work in us now and through us as we leave here and head out into the mission field. And all things said and done for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.